We've been talking for the last few weeks. This is, uh, by the way, be praying about this whole, you know, endeavor that we're, uh, we're taking on here. I mean, I don't know what I'll say. Maybe one of the harder things we've jumped into, I would say. Uh, I'm going to explain about what we're doing and then invite you to participate. But we're doing this series called Questioning Faith. And we kind of wanted to start, like, with the very fundamental building blocks of our faith. I, what I love about the word is that, you know, um, there's a great passage that says the farmer sows the word. I, I love that our job is just to sow the word of God. You can just preach the word of God, share the word of God, study the word of God, meaning the Bible, you know what I mean? You can just throw it out there. You can scatter it. You can do things. You may, you may, I heard somebody tell me a story about how they witnessed uh, someone they worked with, a coworker, set and read their Bible for years over lunch. Now, I don't know why that person, neither of those person was telling me why they were reading their Bible um, over the years. Uh, but for this person, it became a sign or uh, a witness to them that there was something more going on in the Bible than what maybe we expect. I would encourage you, we always do, to be engaging in, in the Word of God, but this series is different because, especially these first two weeks, because we are kind of taking a look at the fundamental tenets of the faith. Last week, we talked to, asked the question, you know, is there a God like a God, right? Um, and that was something that has to be established. Your whole worldview will be shaped by the reality if you believe there is a God or not a God. And then some of the things we're going to talk about today we're going to get into are going to be kind of along that same line of thinking, I guess, as we study and ask the question, uh, is the Bible true, right? We take the Bible pretty seriously here at Family Bible Church, as you might imagine, because we put it in the name of the... By the way, we take family seriously here too as well. And so, but we take it pretty seriously uh, having it in our name. But it's more than that, right? I mean, one of the conversations you may have with people who don't yet know Christ as Lord and Savior is they'll say, well, tell me something you know besides from the Bible, right? And that's kind of what we did last week. We talked about, can, is there some stirring in us that says, yes, there's something bigger going on, or do I know everything, Right? And, but this week we're going to ask, talk about this particular book, which is actually not a book, but 66 books that are put together, and it's like a little library. You can just carry it around with you, yeah? And it has a, a lot of wisdom, a lot of, you know, help to us, but it's also caused a lot of controversy and questions in people's hearts and minds. And so we want to dig into this today and ask that question, is the Bible true? Kind of a weird thing to preach about, though, you know? So we're going to kind of take it from a couple different angles. I hope you'll uh, journey with me. And um, the other thing I want to say about this whole series is that we're doing a family group study as well. So this Sunday morning stuff, we're just presenting kind of some thoughts, but in the small groups, in these gatherings in people's homes, it's happening Monday, Tuesday, I don't think Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday mornings, actually before service, you can come and engage in that conversation in a more meaningful way if there's some questions you have or something. And it don't have to mean like you say, well, I don't believe that. Or just, you know, if you want to be, have more understanding of what your faith is about. And I mean, your faith is about, right? That's what we're asking you to do is engage in that conversation. But as we always do, as we enter into the word of God, we're going to enter with prayer. We believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is speaking. And we are here to hear from him today. So if you would, uh, join me one more time today in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to talk to you like this. It's a gift that you've given by the blood of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. The, the gift that he provided selflessly on the cross to us just so that we could have a relationship with you. And let us, I hope we never take that for granted. Lord, that we can just come to you and talk to you so freely. Thank you for your grace poured out on us. I pray today as we uh, discern your word, the, the scriptures you've brought to us, that we would have a heart and mind to see truth. 
I pray that we'd be a people of truth, Lord. And uh, that seems more and more difficult in the world we live in. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit, the counsel that your Son promised to us, would be with us this morning, teaching us in our hearts, changing and transforming our minds, that we could be completely you know, honest before you. And that's what we're after, Lord. So we thank you for the chance to do it. I pray that everything that we do is for your glory in this place and all the other places that we go. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's an interesting thing. You'll see on the back of your, by the way, I hope you got a connection card this morning or an engagement sheet, I should say. On the back of there, there's a few questions, kind of starters, whatever. And they're roughly kind of put together. And we'll see how we work together through them this morning. I wanted to start with this. What is the purpose of Scripture, right? Meaning, you know, our, our family group last week talked a lot about, you know, how we think God sees us. And one of the things I think that's pretty interesting is, is how you approach this Bible will kind of instruct your relationship with God in some way. Some people would say the, the Bible is a book of rules. That's why it was written. It's to keep all of you in line, Right? And others I've heard said it's love letters, right? And uh, others have said it's uh, the word of God. Some have said it's, it's great literature, right? And, and there's all these gamuts of, of how significant scriptures are. Well, the first thing I wanted to do to be faithful in our task of proclaiming God's word is to look at what scripture says about what scripture is about, okay? And we'll talk about this in a moment, but I'm gonna ask you if you would to turn with me to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This is gonna be a familiar passage to you probably if you've been in church long because this is one place, Timothy's young man that Paul's writing to and telling him what the important things to do as a, as a, as a pastor, as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? A disciple maker. And, and here in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he spells it out a bit for Timothy, what should happen, what the word of God is about. So hear it with me this morning. It says this in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. There's a couple things happening there. He learned and become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it. Okay, that's all interesting. 15. And how from infancy you have known, here he says it, holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture then, Paul says, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this passage lines out six key functions, if you will, of scripture. Now bear with me a minute because this is kind of like the biblical answer for what the Bible is for. Okay, and you can look with me, and I hope you are, because there's not a great mystery in how we figure this stuff out. The first thing that we see here is it says that, well, first thing he says, all scripture is God breathed. He's making a proclamation about what the word is, right? The Bible is, that God spoke it. He breathed it. There's something there. But then this is what it says. It's useful, this is how it can be used, for teaching. This is the first kind of, you know, purpose that Paul sees for scripture when he's writing to young Timothy, And teaching here means instruction, or better yet, application of instruction, or better yet, modifying your lifestyle. That's what Paul says for Timothy. It's a good way to orient your life around Scripture. The word teaching doesn't quite sum all that up, but it's not just like the old, you know, the teacher in the front of the classroom. It's like a real way to live it out, out there, to make a difference in your life, the first purpose of scripture according to Paul. The second thing he says here is what does he say next? 
rebuking. Now, rebuking is a funny word because I always think of a rebuke. It means like someone said, like, you're wrong, <laughs> you know? You're wrong. And who wants to hear that in their life, right? But Paul says that the, the next uh, function is rebuking. Now, rebuking is interesting because it actually means a proof. Listen to this. A possibility. A persuasion. Or a reproof. Meaning someone believes something wrongly and you, you reprove them with it. Last week we asked that question, is it possible? One of my frustrations with all of this, and the reason we're even studying it as a church, church-wide, is I want us to be able to engage in intelligent conversations with those who don't yet know Christ. They will not come to Christ because of our intelligence. They will come to Christ because of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how God works. But it is our job to be in conversation with people. And here, Paul says, the second use of Scripture is rebuking, meaning a proof or a possibility or a persuasion. The third thing that he says, useful for tra- teaching, rebuking, and correcting. Now see, if you had my simplistic idea of rebuking, it would sound a lot like correcting, wouldn't it? And correcting here means to reform. As a matter of fact, my favorite thing uh, that this word means when it says correcting, it means to bend it straight again. You know, that's what it means, to reform it. As a matter of fact, as part of the uh, Protestant faith, you'll, if you know your church history a little bit, you'll know that part of what the Protestant faith is called is the reformers because they thought that, that religion had gone out, you know, into left field and needed to be brought back. And so the next purpose that Paul assigns for Scripture to young Timothy, he says, it should be used to straighten things out. It's kind of the same thing as lifestyle, but it's to straighten out things that are bent, that are crooked. There's a great definition of sin, I've heard that man was made straight and in sin he was bent away from God. And, and this reformation, this reforming, this re-straightening, like a piece of rebar, you, and you know, that's what, and you can use it that way, you see, and you can bear weight. If you imagine that you have this bent piece of, you know what a rebar is? Anybody know what a rebar is? Construction guys, there you go. A few of you know what a rebar is. It's just like a steel rod. If that thing's got a bad bend in it, you've got to get it somewhere straight and then put some pressure on it to make it right again. That's the idea of correcting using Scripture to straighten it out. The next thing that he says here is training. Training, and I'm going to hold one word there, the righteousness word. And training means to discipline. Now, discipline is my favorite word and not because I'm a parent. (laughs) Discipline's gotten a bad rap because if you look at the word discipline, the root word is the same as what? Disciple. And, and disciple is not a bad word. And so when, when Paul says it is good for training, he means it's good for disciple making. Why do we preach the word of God? It's good for disciple making. That's what happens. How did we come to understand our faith in Jesus Christ? Someone used the word, preached it. We heard it. They shared it. They taught it. They believed it and they followed it. And we are trained disciplined. It also means the training education of children, or it means to bring someone to full maturity, to not settle for someone who is stuck in adolescence, stuck as a baby, but growing up into all things. So Paul says this is the purpose. So we've got teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and by the way, it says training in righteousness. That's like, you know, properness or or holiness. I say that as an addendum. I'm not sure if that means teaching 
in righteousness, rebuking in righteousness, or correcting in righteousness, or and training in righteousness, or just training in righteousness. I'll let you figure that out. So those are four that are pretty obvious. But look at the fifth thing if you, if on, in verse 17. So that, what's it say? The man of God may be what? Thoroughly equipped, right? And this is the fifth purpose. That you will be fully geared up as the follower of Jesus Christ. For what? Every good work. That's what the purpose is. Scripture, he tells Timothy. So if you've got some things you want to do, some, uh, some ideas of how you can be part of God's work, you should always be checking it against the word. I'll say it to you now, and I might mention this again, that the Bereans were, were um, you know, cheered for, they were, they were congratulated because they always checked the word of God. They would experience something and then check the word of God to see if that agreed. It becomes this tool for us to be fully equipped. And then the sixth thing, we actually read through it already, and it was back in verse um, 15. They are able to make you what? Wise for salvation. Wise for salvation. This is the purpose of Scripture. It's interesting. Like, what is the end of wisdom? Could it be salvation itself? Could that be the highest form? And so, Scriptures can make you wise for salvation, teaching you um, about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so those are kind of the, the Bible's answers, okay, of what Scripture's for. That's just one of them, by the way. We're going to talk about a few other things. The Bible is full of this. Part of the problem in prepping this week's material was that the Bible is full of stuff that says what the Bible is for. A lot of stuff. I love Paul's letter to Timothy here because it's one of the last things we hear about the purpose of Scripture. And it's instructive in that he was writing it to a young believer in Christ. You want to know how to use the Word of God? Use it for those six things. That's what it's made for. And so um, that would be the, the, what Scripture says the purpose of Scripture is. So my next question, and this is funny to me because then why am I even talking about this? We, I could just come up here and preach something else this morning. That would you know, be fine. But not only what is the purpose of Scripture, but the next question that we have is, where is the conflict uh, with truth? Where is the conflict with truth? If you want to turn, you can. It's the, it's the longest psalm in the Bible, I believe, Psalm 119. I'm just going to read one verse. Uh, the psalmist writes this. It says, of, of God, it says, All your words are true, and all your righteous laws are eternal right? So he's making this overarching claim about Scripture and, and its purpose. And in, We're going to push that next slide if we could. John, this is from John, the Gospel of John, 17, 17. And I love, I want to share this with you uh, before we answer this next question, because this is Jesus' prayer. And, you know, we know there's a prayer that's called the Lord's Prayer, right? You all know what the Lord's, you heard the Lord's Prayer before? But what's interesting is there's this prayer in John 17 that Jesus prays for his disciples, the word says. And one of the, one of the, the key points, he calls for unity, he calls for holiness, he calls for the Spirit of God to dwell among us. But one of the things he says is this, Jesus says, sanctify them. He's talking to the Father on your behalf, on my behalf. He says, sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was teaching scripture, he was speaking the very word of God. And he would say this about what he taught. He would say, all I have told you is what my father has told me. Right? Now, we believe Jesus is God. And so you would think, well, you know, Jesus, you knew everything anyway. 
but it becomes this model for how we can know truth through the Father. So the question, when Jesus says, sanctify them, that means make them holy, make them pure by the truth, and your word is truth. He's saying, use your word to change your people. There's so many verses that I would refer to on that that, that say something similar uh, about, you know, writing God's word on our heart, about, you know, having it internalized, having the Spirit teach us so no one has to. So, so the question that, that I was asking is, so where is the conflict with truth then? Because part of the, the problem that we see with the uh, Bible is that people don't believe it's true. They don't believe it's true. And there's great conflict uh, in the church and around the church about the purpose and the, of the truth of the Bible. So I want to say this. If, I'm going to go through three things I see as kind of some battleground areas for Scripture. And I want you to keep an open mind with me as we explore these things. The first is this. And this is an in-house issue. I'm going to start with the in-house issues because it'll maybe be a little harder, right? Maybe, maybe not, okay? But there's one problem when we look at Scripture and we say, well, what's the problem with the truth? And it's this. We make a false distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament as Christians. Right? Where's the conflict with truth? There are people who, who profess to be good, Jesus-following believers, sanctified, holy, saved, going to heaven for eternity, and they say things like this, the God of the Old Testament. The problem with such a thought is that it was foreign to Jesus. Jesus just, when he was praying, I want to remind you that was in the Gospel of what? John. What scriptures did Jesus learn as a child the old testament it wasn't old yet was it no it was just the word of god when he prays and says sanctify them by your truth your word is truth he's speaking to his father about the revealed word people struggle and they say well you know what have you read the old testament there's some crazy things that happen in the old have any of you read the old testament some of you yeah, yes, yeah, right. Yeah, some of you are laughing. You've read it, <laughs> you know. What? And it, it's caused you to ask this question. Who is this God that I believe in? How does he work? Why would he do that? What does that mean for me? And, and so as a matter of convenience, many followers of Jesus have decided, we're just going to, you know, ignore the Old Testament. One of my favorite things that I learned at Greenville College was to call it the First Testament. It's just a language thing, but you know, it was the revealed word of God, right? So it's his revelation to his people. Jesus would have been brought up. Matter of fact, when he goes to the temple and he unrolls the scrolls, he reads from the prophets. That's the First Testament. Matter of fact, question for you, we just read Second Timothy 3, 16, 17. What's Paul referring to? When he says all scripture is God breathed. He's certainly not referring to his own letter at that point exclusively. He's talking about all of the canon of scripture. So, and, and so you might say, well, okay, great. You know what, though? I've read it and there's some stuff I don't like in it. Well, here's my question for you. As you and me and all of our wisdom have decided that the way God did things was wrong. Yeah? And so my question for you is then, 
What standard are you holding up that you're comparing God to, that you're deciding that God of the Old Testament is not a God that you are going to follow? Who's judging who? Becomes the question. There will be many things in Scripture, and by the way, it's not just in the Old Testament and New Testament that will, will catch you off guard. And I would encourage you to steady yourself, pray, and discern that. What, what is that about? But to cast it out and say, well, that's just the Old Testament. Well, that's just, well, that's just Paul's letter to Timothy. Well, that's just Peter. Well, that's just this. And all of a sudden, you have a, a faith of convenience, don't you? And the question is, where is God? Well, that one is mostly in-house. The next question is maybe one of history, right? There's great materials available now. I didn't even like history when I was in school, and I watch history stuff all the time on TV. Do you do that? I couldn't set through a class. I failed three or four of them, and yet I'm like, well, that's fascinating. I had no idea that was history. Some people make claims, truth claims about the Bible, and they will say, the Bible isn't historically accurate. Have you heard that before? Right? Uh, they just take, matter of fact, my favorite one, I'll share this with you, my favorite one is, um, I've sat with people who said to me, Jesus didn't exist. They just flat don't believe he existed at all. Like you and I are existing, they don't believe he was a real person at all. Just made up. And I think only through our current kind of intellectual laziness and uh, ego can we make up things like that some truths about the scripture and i couldn't possibly pack all this in but i'm going to give you some resources i mean i'm going to refer to some things there's tons of stuff out there if you want to look into the truth of the orient the origin of scripture how we know what we know about the bible but the truth is this that the bible and not maybe the one in your hand today right but the bible meaning the the 66 books that are compiled you know compiled together in the canon of scripture are the most vetted book of its kind, meaning that pe people on every side have examined stuff, have seen the, the, the little shards and fragments. There's, you know, and, and you'll see it all the time if you're reading scripture. You'll see these little footnotes, and they'll say other texts say this because there'll be these slight discrepancies in what's being said. But what's amazing about those little bitty changes in the language here and there means that all the other stuff you're reading is in agreement, that they found five, six, or seven copies of things that all match. It's been researched and studied by those who love it and those who despise it. It's been challenged repeatedly. And then just conceptually, which is the laziest way to do it, honestly, just conceptually to challenge it. Well, that couldn't have happened. Do you know why? Because that's beyond the possibility of my reality. Right? The second thing that I would say about the history versus scripture question is that parts of the Bible that were written as history are historically accurate. Yes? We can't... We, we, we read the Bible and there's, there's kind of different intentions of the author and I'm not making any apologies for anything in the scripture. I believe it's the word of God. But I think that when we read things, you know, there's some uh, hyperbole or there's some kind of things that you wouldn't expect to be historically accurate. But the parts and much of the scriptures are history, are historically accurate. This would include much of the New Testament, much of the Old Testament as well. And as a matter of fact, one of my favorite things about Scripture, and I told you this last week too, there are some things that were written in the Bible that I personally wouldn't write in a Bible if I was trying to convince people, you know? But one of my favorite things is that when the, and I want to take just a minute here, 
one of the original purposes of Scripture was to get it out in, in to, to send the word out so people could know. But they sent it out amongst the people who could know or not know. Let me explain what that means. The, the letters of the New Testament especially were written to a people group that had experienced much of what the letters referred to. They were there. They saw it. And so whenever you start to try to explain what's happening or when Luke sat down and Luke Acts, when he wrote those books, he sat down to document all these things together into one continuous thought, all the things that had happened he wanted to record of Jesus Christ. And so these things were written to a people who could have easily been like, that's not what happened. We receive it as people who weren't there. But when they were originally written, it was a very lively thing. What I started to say that I will say is this. The Bible began as oral history. The Bible began as oral history. A father telling a son and a son telling his son. And it's ancient teaching. And only in our current culture of complete arrogance could we so passively dismiss all of the past and say, but we know better, right? I, I just don't think we fully understand how arrogant we are in our knowledge there's this fancy little thing called epistemological humility. That's a funny thing to say. And epistemology means how you know what you know, and humility means don't be so proud. <laughs> so epistemological humility means don't be so proud about how you know what you know. Scriptures were handed down generation to generation. They were recorded, written down. They, they, the people gave their whole lives to, to write out a copy of the Bible because they wanted to get it exactly right, not exactly wrong. And it's handed down to us. I say all that because um, the funny thing is, someone is pointing out to me this, this week that they have a copy of the NIV. And they're like, I looked them up online and it's different. With the online stuff now, they're changing the translations of the Bible almost daily or I don't know how often it happens, but it happens often because they find different fragments and they correct. And it's all this kind of, but it's little settling things. There's no major shifts happening. But you might pick up your Bible and read it and look online and read the same translation. It'll have different language because there's more understanding about what the original word said. It's, it's a seek, seeking accuracy, not, not, uh, not falsehood. Well, the, the, the last thing is this. I, I want to jump into with this kind of where's this conflict with truth? And it's this one. And it's my favorite one. And it's science versus faith. Okay? Science versus faith. And, and I pulled up that thing a minute ago. I don't know if you saw it, that slide, but um, this past week, uh, NASA has, or some, some agency, I don't know if it's NASA anymore, I don't know if they're doing what they're doing, but they have something called the Dark Matter Telescope now. The Dark Matter Telescope. And it took this picture. And I was so excited to show it to you. I don't know if you have like, any you know, um, uh, astronomy nuts in here, like, right? And I'm not too much of an astronomy nut. But that is beautiful to me. And, and I should probably have, be able to tell you what that is. I can't. It's like a galaxy that they could see. It was something. And, but it was taken with this dark matter telescope, this dark matter telescope. Now, what's interesting about dark matter is um, that scientists are now hypothesizing that 74 to 78% of the universe is full of dark matter. And if you ask them what dark matter is, do you know what they'll say? We don't know. We don't know what it is. 78% of what's out there, we have no idea, but it seems to be causing things to expand in ways that we don't understand. 
Because according to all the current models, things should not be expanding and accelerating at the rates they are. But something is driving things in the universe, and they don't understand it. Now, a, a good scientist has no problem saying that. Epistemological humility. They're like, I don't know, what's, that's dark matter. And they built this awesome telescope to look at it. And so, um, so, so there's this, but here's the thing. You see, over the years, there's been ginned up this conflict, this war right? This, this battle, it started like in the late 1800s between science and religion. It started, some of you say it started earlier than that, right? With the Catholic Church in the 1600s. But there's this just, just fight going on. And I got to be honest with you, when I sit and see something like that, I'm in awe. I'm like, wow, that's really out there. There's really a great big telescope flying around the earth right now that's taking pictures of stuff like that. And you guys are paying for some of that, which is pretty amazing. It's kind of yours, I wanted to find more pictures, but guess what all I could find was artists' renderings, artists' interpretations about things. I thought, that's cool, and it's like, oh, it's an artist's illustration. That's not a real picture. I wanted to see real pictures, not someone's ideas of what could be, but what is. So we have this thing where there's this kind of artificial um, battle going on between science and the Bible, Right? And, and, and you can walk down this road any way you want. Scripture is God's word, and yet the universe is full of things that we don't understand. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm pretty tainted in this way because I love God. I've come to know God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit. It's just changed me. But I didn't get less excited about God's creation, about all the things that bring glory to him. But I don't worship them. I worship him. Yeah? Through them. Well, there's this, um, this one thing that I learned is this. If you believe that God is the God of truth, meaning no lies, aletheia, that there's nothing, there's no falsehood in him, then you don't have to be afraid of pursuing truth wherever it is. You go look for truth. That's our job, church. And we see things like that. We can be like, wow, that's amazing. And you can seek that out. The mantra becomes this, all truth is God's truth, and therefore we need not be afraid of any conversation. There's no reason to be afraid, knowing the God of truth. I get quite frustrated with this because sometimes I feel like in the church and the people of God, we're asked to not think. We, we, we find ourselves painting ourselves into corners that are so ridiculous because we're trying to protect something that, that God never intended to be protected. There's people right now who are amazed that we can see what we can see. Not only that we have life on this planet, but that we are able to see what we can see from where we are. It's a unique opportunity that God has given us to explore. Well, I, I want to share it with you um, because uh, it's just freeing to me. So much of the, the conflict between science and, and faith is, is just wasted energy. It's completely wasted energy. Well, I didn't come to this on my own. I mean, I, I came to faith because of the grace of Jesus Christ, but there was this, um, this book we had, and I'll recommend this book to you. This is a book called The Galileo Connection. If you're a Greenville student, you might know this book. Uh, it's required reading, I think, for all students. It's really interesting, but I want to read you a little excerpt from it. I don't usually do this, as you know, but I think it's fascinating. This guy, um, Charles Hummel, was a, uh, a Christian and a scientist and was really curious about this conflict of not wanting to acknowledge truth in the church. It was really frustrating to him. I'll let you read the book. It's, I mean, it's huge. I couldn't 
do it justice up here. But this is, this is what really struck me. He says, this was a personal journey. And this isn't what he says. This book is a result of my lifelong interest in both the Bible and modern sciences. While studying chemistry and physics in high school, I eagerly read Christian books on science. And a few available volumes attempted to demonstrate the scientific reliability of the Bible and so gain a respectful hearing for its message. Armed with such arguments, I went off to university to study science and convert my skeptical classmates. In many vigorous discussions about miracles, natural laws, and evolution, some wins and some losses occurred, but I failed to prove the truth of the Bible and thus win any of my friends to Christ. In fact, such discussions rarely move toward a consideration of the life, death, and resurrection of the Savior at all. Yet it never occurred to me to question the strategy for my campaign for Christianity until my senior year. It was actually a non-Christian friend who took me to task and said, why are you so desperately concerned to make the Bible scientifically respectable? Isn't Christianity essentially a matter of commitment to Jesus Christ? And when I read that, and as a matter of fact, Galileo himself, right, if you know anything of Galileo, was a Christian and was a scientist. That's what started this whole thing about the earth isn't the center of the universe. There's this question, and I think it's a hard one to ask, but it's this. Why, as the people of God, why as those who have been given truth, not only the, the Bible, the Word of God, but the Spirit of God to discern it, to know it, to proclaim it, why are we afraid to engage in truthful conversations? There's this kind of fear that hinders us. And um, why would we feel so much better? Let me tell you a quick story. We would feel so much better if it were proven true. Even if proving it true meant it destroyed our faith. A few years ago, there was a box of bones that were found. And they were thought to be the bones of Jesus. And everyone got excited about this box of bones. A few people were thinking clearly and thinking, wait a minute, Jesus isn't dead. He was raised. How could there be a box of bones? So they staked out a claim. This can't be Jesus' bones. He isn't dead. But other people in the Christian community are like, this could prove that Jesus was real. This will be great. And everyone was getting excited. Everyone was getting, you know, and people who didn't believe were, the skeptics were upset. Everyone's upset. And they go along. And finally, they start to look at this and it's a hoax. And my only question about it all is, why were people so excited about that? I'm afraid that much of our uh, war is more about our ego than the glory of God. I'm afraid it's much more about our pride than our humility. And I'm afraid, like uh, Hummel says, that all those conversations bring very few people to Christ. So the question is, where is the conflict with truth? Where is it really? One thing that we know, I want to tell you this, church, the word of God will stand. 
one of the problems with comparing it to every scientific theory that comes along and trying to make it fit or make it work or explain it away or make it to where you're not, you know, the person in the room that doesn't seem to fit in. One of the problems with that is that theory will change tomorrow. And you will have compromised the word of God. Isaiah the prophet, when he's speaking of scripture, he says this, the grass withers and the flowers will fall, but the word of God will stand forever. Where is the conflict? When Isaiah is talking about the grass, he means us. And the flowers are praise. It's all going away. But the word of God will stand. And we, we, get, we get all bunkered in. We're going to go to war on this issue. What? I don't think God is threatened by our science. One of uh, my experiences was going to Washington and seeing a natural history museum. And I want to invite you to walk around your whole life with discernment. There were things in there I'm like, wow, that's crazy. And there were things that I saw, I'm like, they can't be real. Is that real? And then I read a little footnote and say, this is an artist's speculation of what this could be. It wasn't real. God knows what's real. The word of God speaks to the reality. This beyond us. There's so much more I get into today, but I can't. I can't. I'll say this one thing. The Genesis narrative, Genesis 1, I, want you, I would invite you to read that. The amazing thing about the Genesis narrative is not about how that happened or whatever, but that the God who is beyond our experience of time started that. I don't know what that means to be outside of time. But time began when God said so. Let alone creation. Jesus, in talking about the word of God, said this. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, Jesus said, not the smallest letter, not the slightest stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything that God wants done is done. Nothing is going away. We need not fear anything. God's word stands. So the last thing I want to do, that was the middle, the, uh, the last thing I want to do is then ask, ask this question, how then should we read scripture? How should the Bible be read? And we're going to take our cue from Psalm 119, 105. You know the Psalm, you don't have to look it up probably. It says what? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. The psalmist, when he writes, he's celebrating God's word in his life, and he says, it's a light on my feet, and a, and a, or a lamp on my feet, and a light from my path. You may have memorized that when you were a child. You may have taught other children to memorize that verse of Scripture. What I love about that is it teaches two fundamental realities about Scripture, and part of my frustration as someone who's been transformed by the word of God by engaging in it is this. The, the Bible is infinitely applicable to your life right now. That's what the psalmist says. It's a lamp unto your feet. If your life is a mess, look in the word of God. You will see clearly what's going on around you if you will only look to God for it. Why is this happening? Why are we in this situation? Why does this continually happen to me? 
He says, my word is a light to your feet. You can see where you're standing. You can see what's going on. There's a lot. Can you imagine? Imagine with me at the moment. Would you imagine if you were standing in utter darkness and had no clue where you were? The psalmist says the word is a lamp at your feet. That's cool. But a second thing, and I transposed a minute ago, is he says it's a light for your path. And the word light here means it's like the rising sun over the horizon. It's not this little bitty flashlight, if that's what you're thinking. It means this great breaking dawn. It's this whole reality. It's this whole revelation to us about what God is doing in the world. It's like that first, and then the path is those trodden places, the places where you are to go. And this light becomes this kind of beacon, this, this directional signal for us to follow, to pursue. Is the Bible a book of rules? Yes. God tells us how to live. Is the Bible love letters? Yes. It tells us how much he loves. It's this light for our path. And it's this breaking dawn. This breaking dawn. I'm going to close with this verse. And it's from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. You can turn there if you would like to. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Two verses, 39 and 40. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Not Matthew. Thanks, Dave. John 5. I was like, why did I mark that? I was really not paying attention. 39 and 40. I love this, too. This is the teaching from, from Jesus himself, his own lips. And, and this is what is recorded by John. He's talking to those who are religious, right? He's talking to those who are holy in the culture, and this is what he says in verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures. Listen to what Jesus' accusation is. Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me and have life. We could be guilty of the same thing. As followers of Jesus... We don't worship the Bible. We don't. But we worship the God of the Bible. And Jesus here is rebuking people and he's saying, you think that your salvation comes through Scripture, but it doesn't. It comes through me. The Scriptures talk about Jesus. And by the way, all the Scriptures talk about Jesus. And this is the claim that he was making here. Yet you refuse, and this is the problem, and this is the heart of the issue. I mean, that's the heart of the issue for all these debates, is that people refuse to come to Jesus. That's the crux of it. And as long as we're tied up in these, you know, protracted wars, we can't have a real conversation about the salvation of Jesus Christ, of what's been offered. We're so busy trying to be respected that no one hears the truth. Even us, all of our study will not bring salvation, but only a relationship with Jesus Christ. I would commend you to study scripture. There's so much more. I would commend you to check out the Galilee Connection if you're interested in science and this, you know, there's a, it's a great read. Um, and there's one more thing I would recommend to you. There's this uh, work by Lou Giglio called Indescribable. 
I think the reason that was such a cool thing for the Christian community is because we had spent so long with our blinders on, not wanting to acknowledge the glory of God. And that's a shame. Please join me in prayer. Father, today uh, we've come into your house, this little bitty space in this little bitty planet, in this little bitty solar system, with all this stuff that we admit we don't understand. And yet, your word speaks in ways that gives us wisdom. Your word has been so beautiful in how it has brought us knowledge of Jesus Christ. And today, Father, I pray for all of our effort, for all of our toiling, that we would truly trust you to be the author of all truth. That we would pursue you, that we would be looking at your creation and worshiping you because of it. And then everything, your people be free. Free to know you. I pray, Father, for those who are here, who, whose hearts are hardened against the gospel, and, 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 they, and we think it's because of what's in our head, and it's not, it's in our heart. That if we have to come to you, we have to acknowledge that we aren't in charge of everything that we need your help, that, as your word said, we need wisdom for your rescue. And yet today, Father, that's the gospel that we proclaim, that you are the God who saves us, that you are the God who leads us, that you are the God that loves us, and that you are the God that after all this has passed away, we will be with you. What a great and glorious truth, and we thank you for that. I thank you for every person that came here today. I pray that they would know your great love for them. And I pray that in everything we do, this time, our time in the world, we would glorify you and celebrate the work you're doing. May you always have the glory because you are forever worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.